This is Pastor Rick Bino of Hokesson Baptist Church, and you're listening to From Shadow to Substance, a sermon series from the book of Hebrews. Today's sermon is entitled, Therefore, Draw Near to God. Good morning again. Welcome, to, welcome back to our series from the book of Hebrews. The series is entitled, From Shadow to Substance. Today we're going to try to tackle three chapters from the book of Hebrews, or most of three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10. And I'm not trying to tackle three chapters because they're simple. These are not necessarily simple chapters. But remember that the organization of our teachings that we're doing on Sunday morning is divided up based on ten major teachings from the book of Hebrews and the corresponding therefore or application from that teaching. And what we'll find today is that the writer of Hebrews has a long argument that stretches through chapters 8, through chapters 9, and the first half of chapter 10. So you might want to prep yourself by getting your Bibles open. Turn to Hebrew, chapter, the book of Hebrews. And uh, we've read a, a bunch of the passages that we'll be referring to, but I will have us be jumping in and out of the book of Hebrews in those chapters to sort of focus on the important things that I want us to talk about this morning. If you've been with us all along, you'll have noticed by this time that there's a pretty significant a core teaching that the writer of Hebrews has regarding Jesus. And that core teaching is this, Jesus, the message of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, the work of Jesus are better and are superior to what has, become, what has come before. And we see that theme show up again in Hebrews 8 verse 6 where the writer says the ministry that Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the high priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it's founded on better promises. So once again, the writer says what Jesus is doing, what Jesus is here for, what Jesus is accomplishing is better, is superior to what has come before. It's better than the sacrificial system. It's better than the tabernacle. It's better than the high priests that you all are used to, he is saying to his audience. But at this point, it seems like it would be fair for us to ask, well, what then is he exactly saying about all of these things that came before? I mean, is it possible that the writer of Hebrews is saying, well, I know you've done all these other things for hundreds, thousands of years, but now all of that's just, we're just going to throw it all out. What is he saying about all these things that have come before, the sacrifices, the tabernacle, the priesthood, in light of the fact that Jesus is better? And in order to understand this, we need to understand some of the, the nuances of the word better, particularly in the way that the audiences back then would have understood argumentation and rhetoric. Let's think of two major ways that we can use the word better. Let me give you a scenario. You walk into your hotel room, and you find that the bathroom wasn't cleaned very well. There's a roof leak. There's a funky smell. You crank open the curtains. There's a brick wall. So you call down. It's say, I'd like a new room. And they give you a new room, and this new room is clean and fresh-smelling. It's got a great view. You drop down in your chair, and you say, this is better. 
And what you mean when you say this is much better, what you're saying is that that other room we had, that was bad. This room is good. Bad? Good. So when you use better in that context, you're making a statement about the other thing being bad. And that's a particular type of argument, a particular type of rhetoric known as sagas. And that is when you argue one thing is better by saying the other thing was bad. And this argument does show up some in the book of Hebrews, but the primary type of argument is a different use of the word better, known as synchresis, where in declaring something better, you are actually honoring or showing appreciation or showing the value of the thing that came before it, because the thing that came before it helps you to understand and appreciate the thing you have now. Let me give you another similar scenario. A large majority of you are homeowners, or you grew up in a home of of parents who are homeowners. But all of you who are homeowners weren't always homeowners. There was a time where you weren't a homeowner, you were an apartment dweller or an apartment renter. And when you finally settled into your own home, it is likely you said something like, ah, this is better. But when you said it in that context, unless you had some horrible apartment experience, which you may have had, but most of us in that context would not be saying that the apartment life was bad. We would simply be saying that that apartment living served a certain function at a certain time in our lives, and it was a good thing. Because at that time in our lives, it provided a safe place for us to live, uh, an inexpensive place for us to live, and a place to live until we could have our finances together, perhaps before we could afford a house. So when you sit in your home and you say, oh, this is better, you're not saying that apartment life was bad. You're saying that the function of apartment living was a different function and had a different purpose and a different value than homeownership. So one may be better than the other, but you're not declaring the other to be bad. Matter of fact, you may even see the lots of the value of apartment living because it was the apartment living that helped you to appreciate homeownership because of the good things that homeownership would bring, a yard, a garage, more space, whatever it was that you were looking for in buying a home. And it's with this kind of positive comparison that the writer wants us to understand the whole Old Testament system. He is not creating a, Jesus is good, the Old Testament was bad. Jesus is good, the whole old sacrificial system was bad. He is saying that the sacrificial system is done. He's saying it's over, it's obsolete, don't go back to it. But he's also going to say it has great value in helping us to understand and appreciate the work of Jesus. And so we don't throw out what we learn from the Old Testament and the Old Testament systems. But what Jesus, or what, sorry, what the writer is telling us is that the older systems were the shadows, they were the patterns, and Jesus is the substance. Hence our sermon series title, From Shadow to Substance. And he refers to this five different times in our passage. He talks about something about a copy, an illustration, or a shadow. Let's look at those quickly. In chapter 8, verse 5, it comes up twice. The high priests serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and a shadow of what is in heaven. So there's two elements of the Old Testament patterns, setting patterns for Jesus' work. And then look over at 9.9. 9. 
He says this is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They were illustrations. In 923, it was necessary then for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. And then down in 10.1, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are to come, that are coming, not the realities themselves. I hold in my hand a pattern. I think it's of a shirt. I'm not sure. Now, I consider myself, by the way, to be relatively adept in a lot of areas of living. I consider myself able to, to uh, be relatively intelligent in many different areas, including household life. I can iron. I can do laundry. I don't like to, but I can. I can even mop a floor. But when it comes to this, I've often told my wife, I am absolutely and utterly clueless. We have a sewing machine. I could not begin to tell you even how to turn it on, how to work it. It has a pedal. I don't know what the pedal does. I've heard the word bobbin used, so I assume that's involved in a sewing machine somewhere. Know nothing about it. I know nothing about sewing, which makes my wife laugh because it was so, such a part of her upbringing. So she knows everything about sewing. I know nothing. I could not read this or do anything with this even if you paid me. I was thinking a few weeks ago, my daughter came home from softball, and it's like the 50th anniversary of her league, and, and within a couple of days, she had to have a patch sewed onto her uniform. And I remember thinking, I'm so glad my wife's not away this week. Because if she was, my daughter would have gone to softball with the patch stapled to her uniform. That's, that's, that's all I had. Staples, hot glue, or rivets would have been my only choices. There would have been no sewing. Velcro, maybe. But for those of you who do sew, you understand the value of a pattern. You understand the need for a pattern. Matter of fact, everything you're wearing right now, they all began as a pattern. But none of you are here this morning wearing a pattern, are you? You don't wear the pattern, you wear the substance that came from the pattern. And so too does the writer of Hebrews say, the Old Testament had its value for setting up a pattern. But we have the substance of the pattern in Christ. And so we value the pattern for what it was worth. We value the pattern of the Old Testament. We value what the pattern of the Old Testament taught us about Jesus. But we don't wear the pattern. The substance of Christ has come. And so we follow Christ. The sacrifices, the priesthood, the tabernacle, they were all good in their time and they were adequate for what they meant to do and that is point us to the work and life of Christ to help us understand the heart of God and the way God works better. And one of the ways that they prepared us, one of the ways that the Old Testament sacrifices have prepared us for the work of Christ is that they showed us the need for blood and the shedding of blood to deal with our sins. Look over at chapter 9, verse 19. Chapter 9, verse 19. When Moses had proclaimed every commandment of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and he sprinkled the scroll on all the people. 
He said, this is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you to keep. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. If you were to be time transported from this room right now and dropped in front of the tabernacle during one of the sacrifices, you would have been clearly shocked and probably to the point of appalled at the amount of blood that was seen. This writer of Hebrews says it almost in a language that we would understand today, sort of an idiomatic. Everything, almost everything was covered with blood. And in certain parts of the tabernacle, this would have been true. Blood was sprinkled on everything. You could not have lived your life watching the sacrificial system without understanding that blood had to be sacrificed or blood had to be shed in order to cover sins. And the writer tells us why. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Here's the rub. Sin is never ignored. Your sin, my sin, the sins of God's people are never ignored. They're forgiven, but they're not ignored. Because the blood was still shed for those sins. So God does not ignore them or sweep them under the rug. God does not pretend sin doesn't happen. As Paul said, the wages of sin is death. And the entire sacrificial system set them up to understand that the wages of sin is death. God doesn't just say, oh, it's all right. No, something has to die in order to satisfy God's justice and God's character of justice. Sin requires death. And this was hammered home every day with the priests and the tabernacle and the sacrifices. But ironically, this same lesson the same lesson that says there must be the shedding of blood for sin. And so there were all these animal sacrifices. This same lesson also was the greatest weakness of the whole system. And the writer of Hebrews makes no mistake about it that the blood of animals cannot suffice to cover the sins of people. Let's look at a few places where he emphasizes this. Look in verse, chapter 9, verse 9. This is an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. Look over to chapter 10, verse 1. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and no longer would have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And then look over at 10.11. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. And so what the Old Testament has done, it has shown them their need for a mediator and for a sacrifice. But then the writer of Hebrews comes right out and says, 
but your sacrifice, all those animal sacrifices, they don't actually forgive your sins. And so now the people are in a dilemma. What is it then that will forgive our sins? And in that context, Jesus is presented. If you were an Israelite, you would have understood, because of all these systems, that you didn't just waltz your way before the Holy of Holies. There's examples of, uh, in the Old Testament of people who did go into the Holy of Holies or mishandled the ark, and they're usually not treated very kindly. Their lives end very quickly. And they all knew that. No, one would have, no Israelite would have just sort of walked through the outer court and moved into the Holy of Holies and then made their way through the maze of curtains into the, the holiest of holies. Because they understood that you could not approach God without a mediator, the high priest, and without a sacrifice. And even the mediator had to come in with a sacrifice. They understood this. They knew that there was no way to draw near to God without a mediator and without a sacrifice. And so as the writer of Hebrews has been meditating on this, we've already seen him work out in several different ways how Jesus is our advocate, how Jesus is our mediator, how Jesus is our high priest. And if you were listening, if you were an original, someone listening in the original audience, you would have said, that's great. Jesus is our high priest. That's fabulous. But what is the sacrifice that Jesus brings? Because you knew that the high priest could not go before God without a sacrifice. So what is the sacrifice? Now, I don't know what the mindset of the writer of Hebrews was when he was writing this, but I was just sort of imagining if I was writing this and the Spirit of God was leading me into the truths about Jesus, this moment here in this section would have been an exciting moment. Any of you remember the A-Team? Remember a good 80s show? Well, for what it's worth, the A-Team was this group of guys that were sort of running from the law and they were sort of Robin Hoods who ran around and helped people who were in trouble. And uh, the, the lead guy, Hannibal, 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 um, the lead guy will have this real huge plan, this huge complicated plan that could never ever be done. But that was okay, I was 10 and I thought it was cool. This huge plan that could never be done, and then in the last minute it all comes together and all works out. And he had this tagline where he would say, I love it when a plan comes together. They would all be excited. They'd high five. And I feel like, in a theological way, not an A-team way, but in a theological way, that the writer at this point would have felt the power of the Spirit saying, look how it all comes together in Jesus. Because Jesus, this one that you've been meditating on and working through and wrestling with as being the great high priest, is also the sacrifice. He is the high priest and the sacrifice. In going before God, he operates both as mediator and blood sacrifice. And so nothing else is needed except Jesus in approaching God. I don't know if anybody else was around, if there was a scribe or something, but this is where the writer of Hebrews would have high-fived somebody and said, that is cool. Look how Christ fulfills all aspects of the Old Testament. All aspects of this system is fulfilled in Christ. So what does that mean? If everything from the Old Testament pattern, if all the pattern is filled in Christ, is fulfilled in Christ, what does that mean? Well, he says it in 1019. Therefore, 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, there's Jesus, the sacrifice. We enter by the blood of Jesus. By a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. There's the tabernacle fulfilled in Jesus. And since we have a great priest, the priesthood fulfilled in Jesus, the priesthood, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, all coming together in Jesus. And since this is true, the writer says, let us draw near to God. In a way that was not available before Jesus came and lived and died and rose again, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts cleanse, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, and having our bodies washed with pure water. When you submit your life to Jesus, who is the tabernacle, the sacrifice, and the priest, there's a lot that's happening. When we submit our lives to Jesus and we accept him as our sacrifice, then we're admitting that we are sinful and that we need a sacrifice for our sins. And when we accept him and and follow him as our high priest, we understand that we are unholy and that we need a mediator between God and ourselves. And when we understand him as our savior, we understand that he opened the way, he opened the curtain of the tabernacle so that we may approach the Most High God. So the writer says, therefore, we can draw near to God. But the writer's excited, I think, as I've tried to indicate, that the writer, I think, is he's empowered by the Spirit, he's seeing all these pieces come together, and so he actually throws out in the therefore five different applications so to speak. Five different let us phrases. Let us draw near to God is the first one. In verse 23, let us hold unswervingly to the hope. In verse 24, let us consider how we may spur one another on to love and good deeds. In 25, let us not give up meeting together. And at the end of 25, let us encourage one another. I think this may be the writer's way of saying When Jesus is in your life, everything changes. When Jesus comes into your life, everything changes. He gives us some examples of what changes. Our relationship with God changes, as we already talked about. Our future changes, our our viewpoint of the future changes. We hold on to our hope. No longer do we need need to wonder about our future. No longer do we need to fear. Because we have a great high priest who intercedes before God himself. And this high priest who intercedes for us is pleasing to God, is worthy, and is listened to by God. In a couple different places in this passage, the writer talks about this image of waiting for Christ to return, waiting for the great high priest to return. And and this, like many other parts, is sort of a a reference back to the tabernacle. When When the high priest went in on the Day of Atonement, to offer up his, his, his sacrifice for his own sins and the sacrifices for the sins of the people. The people would wait in anticipation for the priest to come out. 
For he would go into the outer court, and then he would go into the inner court, and he would disappear, of course, from the view of the people. And there would have been this time of waiting, of this anticipation for the high priest to return. Because if he came back out, it showed that his sacrifice was acceptable to God. And so this idea of waiting for our great high priest reminds us that the sacrifice he has made is acceptable to God. And so our future changes, our future hope changes, our actions change. We spur one another on to good deeds. Our deeds matter. Our, 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 the work that we do matters because Jesus has sanctified us and is working in us to do his work. And so our hands can become the very hands of God in the lives of one another. Our relationships change. He says we do not give up meeting together. I'm glad you're all here. You have not given up meeting together. We do not give up meeting together. We will want to walk alongside one another. Other believers will be life-giving to us because the Spirit of God is in all of us. And finally, our motivations will change. We encourage one another. In a world that's sort of dog-eat-dog and climb the ladder no matter what it takes, we don't compete with one another for the goodness of God. But we rejoice in the goodness that God shows each other. We rejoice with one another. Because we know that the goodness of God shown in your life is good for the kingdom of God. And so our motivation is to encourage one another until Christ returns. And so as we see Christ working in our lives, we find out that everything will change. Everything will change. I could ask you, what about your life is different because Christ is in it? What about your life is different because Christ is in it? And if I gave you a few minutes to think about that, hopefully you'd have an answer. But maybe the harder question, especially for those of us who have been Christians for a while, is what about your life is not different? We hear that when Christ is in our lives that everything should change. And we know, I think all of us know, that our, our disposition is, well, let's have, let's have most things change, okay? Can we just have, like, a lot of things change? Can we just have a large majority of things change? We don't necessarily want everything to change. I think the writer of Hebrews says, when Christ, who is our sacrifice and our high priest and our Savior all at the same time, comes into our lives and everything changes. And so we need to ask ourselves, do I shop differently because Christ is in my life? Do I spend money differently because Christ is in my life? Do I handle my temper, do I handle my anger differently because Christ is in my life? Or is that one of those places where I say, well, no, I, I, I we'll work with that later. I don't want to change that. Does the TV you watch, is it different because Christ is in your life? What about your pastimes, video games you play? Are they different because Christ is in your life? Are your words different because Christ is in your life? These are questions that I think we need to be asking ourselves. Because when Christ comes into our lives, he wants everything to change. But as we've seen throughout Hebrews, 
when everything changes in Christ, the change is for the better.